Hello and welcome to the Dyson House podcast by the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. I am Tom Ackhurst and I'm your host. Most Australians would probably be best familiar with the Kurdish people in the context of the military campaign against ISIS. The Kurds have offered the US-led coalition their most reliable and effective partner on the ground in Syria and Iraq. It looked for some time that the Kurds were going to establish at least some form of quasi-independent Kurdish state in Syria to accompany their autonomous region in northern Iraq. But as ISIS fades and the US reduces its engagement, the Kurds have been left between a rock and a hard place where Erdogan's Turkey looks determined to prevent a Kurdish stronghold at Turkey's southern border. Today we are going to investigate the Kurdish story, primarily in the context of its relationship to the Turkish state. This is a relationship informed by a long-running armed conflict in Turkey's Kurd-dominated eastern region, where Kurdish militia groups, mainly the PKK, have been fighting a separatist campaign for decades. An array of negotiations and ceasefires over the past decade have failed to offer any enduring solution to the conflict. Well, today I'm joined by Monash University's Will Goulet, who is an expert in Kurdish politics, particularly in the Turkish context. Thanks for joining me, Will. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. So just for a bit of background, I'm interested, what piqued your interest in Kurdish politics? Uh, it's a long story. I won't give you the entire version, but I went travelling as a backpacker when I finished my undergraduate degree and ended up in Turkey. Uh, spent some time sitting on beaches and visiting Cappadocia, as a lot of people do, and then with some friends travelled further east into the interior of Anatolia, the main landmass of, of Turkey, and went to visit uh, a popular tourist site called Nemrut Dağ. And on the way, we passed through villages that were built into the mountainsides, and we stopped beneath the peak of the mountain to see the statues. And I was, there was these people wielding scythes, um, gathering forage for their, for their stock. And the bus driver pointed them and he said, Kurdish. And this a sort of light bulb went on above my head. I was only vaguely familiar with the, who the Kurds were at that point. Um, this was a couple of years after the first Gulf War when people were familiar with the Kurds because they were being pursued by Saddam Hussein, but I had no idea at all that uh, there were Kurds in Turkey. Um, and then from Nemrut, we went to Diyarbakir, which is the main or the largest Kurdish city in the southeast of Turkey. And I was sort of introduced to the Kurdish struggle, as people explained to me then. Uh, and again, something that I wasn't aware of. So that was uh, 1992. And then subsequently, I went back and lived in Izmir on the west coast of Turkey, uh, teaching English for a, a bit over a year, 1994-95, and sort of maintained my interest in the Kurds uh, and have travelled extensively through the east of Turkey. Then uh, in something of a, a career change, I went back to university and started doing a PhD. I was considering Turkish minorities generally, uh, but the focus soon shifted to the Kurds and I ended up travelling to Diyarbakir three times uh, between 2013 and 15, meeting Kurdish people, interviewing them, uh, seeing what their political situation was, and since then, well, I mean, it's been a long-standing interest, but um, the Kurds have sort of become my primary focus uh, through that process. Okay, so I guess the most basic question just to begin with is, how is Kurdish ethnic identity conceptualised? Is it different between those living in Turkey and those living in Iraq, or is it a uniform narrative across the Kurdish world? Uh, it's a very good question. So a lot of people hear stories about what's happening in the, well, heard stories about what was happening in the fight against ISIS and spoke about the Kurds as if the Kurds are all one unified mass. 
And there's certainly a shared sense of identity across the borders, but they have very distinct political outlooks and they live within different political circumstances. So, and there's actually uh, competition between various Kurdish political entities, particularly in Syria and, and northern Iraq. Um, but there's certainly a sense of shared, a shared identity and there's a quite colourful myth of descent from an evil king who once ruled over the Middle East and the Kurds were the people who rose up and overthrew the king. And that's actually tied within, uh, it also appears in the Persian national um, narrative or national mythology. So the Kurds, broadly speaking, they speak several different languages but or interrelated languages, but they're also linked to Persian. So they're most closely related to the Persians of Iran, uh, but very distinct from the Turks who speak an entirely different language and arrived in the what's now Turkey only a thousand years ago, only a thousand years ago, mm -hmm. uh, whereas the Kurds have been there for since time immemorial and again they're very distinct from the Arabs in their language is entirely related and there are even Kurdish words which are related to European languages so they consider themselves to some degree as an Indo-European pe people. Okay. From that historical perspective have the Kurds always existed as a sub-state entity or is there a time in history that maybe informs their aspirations today where they existed as an independent autonomous yeah. entity? Well most peoples in the Middle East um, existed at sub-state entities throughout history. I mean, the, the nation-state system in the in the Middle East, and indeed Europe, if we want to look historically, is very new. Um, there was no state called Turkey until 1923, and there was no state called Syria and Iraq until the 1920s as well. So there's never been a Kurdish state as such, but within the Ottoman Empire, which straddled most of that region, you know, the capital was in Istanbul, but it went right across the borders of what's now Syria, Iraq, and into Palestine, etc., etc., uh, there were certainly principalities and the, the Ottoman Empire was extremely decentralised. So there were the, all these important cities and sort of local fiefs and emirs is the, is the local word, you know, commanders or tribal leaders. So they never actually had a state uh, of their own, but existing on the border of the Ottoman Empire and then the Persian Empire, which is now Iran, they certainly had a degree of autonomy and there was, wasn't a lot of centralised control from those imperial centres of Istanbul and and uh, wherever the Persian um, empires were based. So they certainly had a lot of independence and autonomy, and but no state as such. Okay. So to what extent is that Kurdish identity underpinned by a desire for a Kurdish state? Well, that's the $64,000 question. Um, it's, it's interesting, like, obviously there's a broad current that, you know, there's a large stateless population and they deserve a state, but... Um, I think to, it's interesting to observe the agendas of the major political or Kurdish political parties. Very few of them actually talk about a unified Kurdish state. Um, most of them now aim for autonomy. While you mentioned the, well, the PKK, you know, struggling for a, a separatist state, uh, I would say that they've kind of abandoned that end goal, and they're certainly intent on autonomy. But I think there's a degree of pragmatism that's entered into Kurdish politics across the board that. A Kurdish state, wherever it might be, is going to be surrounded by hostile neighbours, and it's you know it's going to to create such a state is going to be involve such incredible upheaval that it's probably not worth the the struggle. No. Um, that's not to say that Kurds are going to lie down and let the uh, you know existing states of Turkey and Syria and Iraq do what exactly what they want. Um, but I think the dream of a unified Kurdistan is it remains a dream. Um, and not a really practical reality. And there's quite an interesting um, perspective on that was 
I can't remember who it was, but someone was interviewing Kurds in southeast Turkey some time ago, and they he, he said, do you want a Kurdish state? And they said, yes, of course. And he said, well, if you did, you realise you'd need a passport and a visa to go to Istanbul. And they that sort of stopped them in their tracks because they suddenly thought, well, actually, you know, there are some advantages, or, you know, not denying the disadvantages and the difficult political circumstances they live in, but there are some advantages to the system as it is now. And most Kurdish populations, they've sort of become acclimatised, is perhaps a crass way of putting it, but, you know, of working within a nation-state system. So, okay. you know, for, for all its disadvantages and advantages, they still uh, that sort of determine their political goals and political outlooks. Right. So to get a better idea of who the who the Kurdish people are, uh, one kind of trend that I've noticed is they're conveyed as kind of a standout in terms of uh, they kind of have a, a tendency to democracy um, that seems to stand out in the region. Yeah. I'm wondering whether is that a part of Kurdish culture or is that just a a political linguistic tool? I think it's become something of a rallying point because they've seen, um, well, they live within authoritarian regimes. They've seen the negatives to that. They've also seen that adopting this secular and pro-democracy narrative is, it wins them applause from the West. Um, that's not to say it's an entirely cynical narrative, um, but I think that this shift from the goal of Kurdistan to one of working within existing systems means that they they would be they they see fully functioning democracies, whether it's in Turkey or Syria or Iraq, as a way for them to maintain their identity without the disruption of creating new states and you know war and whatever that's going to involve. Yeah. But it allows them a more you know to uphold their d democracy and behold. Or, sorry, uphold their identity mm. and become involved, more fully involved and have their say in the political processes of the states that they live in. Okay. So in that sense, I think you're right. That it, and it also, to some degree, becomes a mark of distinction. They can say, look, we're the Kurds, we're fighting for democracy. And it's not just about the Kurds, there's other minorities who live amongst us, you yeah. know, they should have their rights as well. But look, these oppressive governments are entirely, you know, persecuting mm. us and others and stifling democratic processes. So yeah. it's, it's a way of, fighting for a you know freer political system but also a way of distinguishing themselves from from those around them from from okay. the oppressive whether they're turks or arabs or even you know iranians yeah and how are gender relations conveyed in kurdish literature and culture because it, especially with the ypj militia which has yeah. been uh, a female militia fighting alongside the yeah. other kurdish for forces in syria and iraq yeah. It seems that Kurdish women hold a more equitable position in Kurdish society than perhaps other parts of the Islamic world. Yeah, I think that's too, true to some degree. I think if you look historically, um, I think that's not the case. I mean, certainly they may be freer than, for instance, women have ever been in Saudi Arabia, but it, it's a, still a very clearly um, gender-divided society. The time I've spent in Diyarbakir, you go to the tea houses or you go to the restaurants and it's all the men, you know. And okay. sure, there are some very bold and feisty Kurdish women and I've yeah. met plenty of them. But, you know, if you look out on the street, it's it's still quite a gender-divided society. But again, the, the this promotion of gender equality is another aspect of this Kurdish identity say, for, the, for them to say, look, we're, we have these Western secular 
values, you know, we value um, gender equality as opposed to these oppressive regimes, whether it's Assad or Erdogan, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, and a lot of it stems from uh, the writing of Abdullah Öcalan, who's the leader of the PKK, who's imprisoned. Um, but he, um, and he, we'll probably get onto it later, but his philosophy or ideology or political vision is shared with certainly the PYD in Syria. Um, and part of that, his writing is, um, it's seen as a sort of grassroots democratic movement. It's called democratic confederalism, and it sounds great on paper. Whether it's really practical is another thing entirely. But again, it's about real democracy for everyone. So in that sense, they're trying to empower women as well. And so the YPJ, as you note, have been quite prominent. And in fact, in areas where the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is principally um, comprised of Kurdish units, uh, they actually have enlisted both Syriac Christians who are uh, indigenous to the northeast corner of Syria and Arab uh, militias. And they've encouraged the same sort of, you know, gender equality within those communities as well. Okay. Um, I think it's been just successful to some degree, but again, they're particularly amongst some of the Arab tribes of northeast Syria are extremely conservative. So there's been some tension. Yeah. Um, but again, yeah, they're trying to promote this more gender equal yeah. um, agenda. And uh, well, the Kurds kind of hit the, the headlines around the world with the Syrian civil war and yep. partnering with the US in that fight against ISIS. And we saw the proclamation of the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria in Ro Rojava, yep. which was essentially a Kurdish-led regional government. We saw the strengthening of Kurdish security and military strength with US air and armed support. Yep. But as Assad regains control over Syria and the US withdraws, leaving the Kurds susceptible to Turkish intervention, has the Kurdish national agenda gained any enduring benefit from its victories against ISIS or are the Kurds just back where they began? Certainly, um, the Kurds have made some advances in Syria. The, indeed, large portions of the Kurdish population in Syria were um, deemed non-citizens, so they were literally literally stateless um, through the 1960s and 70s. So in that sense, the Kurds have emerged onto the international stage and they've established this uh, attempt at democratic confederalism. Um, as to how enduring it's going to be, that's the great unknown, because it's not only that, not only Turkey who is opposed to it, it's um, Assad is surely not happy about losing control of the remainder or the northeast corner of, of his state. Um, so uh, the relationship between Assad and the Syrian Kurds is kind of dicey. Um, he effectively retreated to allow them to take control in the early stages of the civil war so he could concentrate his forces in the south of the country. But uh, I think popular consensus would have it that once he has regained control elsewhere, he's going to then turn his gaze back to the northeast and mm. um, whether the Kurds are going to be able to negotiate some sort of autonomy or some sort of other arrangement, it's difficult to say. I mean, I should be careful there about saying the Kurds because, as you know, it's not just a Kurdish entity and they've made a big effort, again, part of that narrative, we're inclusive, we're democratic, so they've made yeah. a big effort to include other ethnicities and there's a lot of them in that north northern part of um, Syria, you know, there's Chechens and Circassians and Syriac Christians, etc, etc, and Arabs. Um, but whether they're going to be able to negotiate a position or come to some agreement with Assad is entirely anyone's guess. Uh, and Turkey is certainly um, very unhappy about the situation. Yeah. Um, whether that relates to 
well, some people allege that it's just pure anti-Kurdish bias, or whether they're concerned that if the Syrian Kurds establish some sort of model that that's going to inspire the, Tur the Kurds within Turkey to rise up and demand the same thing, yeah. or whether, well, as they say, they uh, Ankara and Erdogan claim that the YPG is a direct threat to Turkey, which I would dispute, um, but other people would argue otherwise. And that's the, the, the militia in northern Syria. Yeah, so the creation of the Syrian Democratic Forces, and I can't remember exactly when that was, was an attempt to say, hey, it's not just the YPG, there's other people here, and we're not necessarily all linked to the PKK, and it was an attempt to yeah. assuage Erdogan's fears, um, which clearly hasn't worked. Um, and do you think that that, that Kurdish um, group there in northern Syria is connected to the the militias fighting in Turkey or that have been fighting in Turkey? There's no denying that there's links and they share the same ideology and they see er Erçelan who's in prison in Turkey as you know a figurehead. Yeah. Um, they certainly espouse his political model, the democratic confederalism model. Um, there's, I think it's undeniable that there's been individuals who fought on both sides and in fact when I was in Diyarbakir in, in 2014 when the ISIS was um, besieging Kobani which is one of the major Kurdish city on that border uh, I met Kurdish women and they said yes we know people who have left Turkey to go and fight with the, the YPG to fight against ISIS that's not to say that they're necessarily going to come back and fight against Turkey and that's Turkey's concern mm. um, so there's no you can't deny the links um, I would dispute whether the YPG or the PYD, the political wing, actually presents as a threat to Turkey. Okay. There may be people who cross between those different forces, and indeed there's the PGA, P, PJAK, which is the Iranian wing, which yeah. is linked. They fight against the Iranian system. Um, but I think that the... I would argue that the Syrian Kurds realise that they're living in very... Um, precarious circumstances, and it's not in their interest to take on Turkey because Turkey's a member of NATO, they're an enormous military force. They could walk in there and obliterate yeah. the area in minutes, and the yeah. Syrian Kurds know that. So they're not going to do anything to antagonise that. So I think there's a, an element of Erdogan is banging the drum to you know, rally support within Turkey, mm. um, saying, look, there's a threat. The Syrian Kurds are a threat to us. And a lot of Turks take on that message and say, yeah. yes, it's true. And a lot of them say, yes, they're all the same, it's all the PKK. But the picture is way more complicated than that. So, okay, well, we'll touch on the relationship between the Kurdish population and, and Erdogan and the AKP in Turkey. But firstly, just m more recently, Turkey's defence minister announced an agreement with the US to establish a safe zone in that Kurdish-controlled area of northern Syria. So I'm wondering, is this a, a part of a genuine attempt to support stability in Syria, or is it just an indication of broader Turkish intentions to silence Kurdish aspirations with military strength? Another good question. Uh, I think it's a very complex, again, a complex situation. Um, I think there, the major element, or what the Erdogan and his um, backers are suggesting is that it's a, an attempt to protect Turkey from the threat. Which, so they see the YPG as, as a threat, or they claim that they are a threat. Um, whether it's an attempt to stabilise, I don't think, I don't think you can see Ankara using this as a, a measure to stabilise Syria, and I don't think that they're necessarily concerned with that. And it's very clear, you know, it's clearly stated that Ankara is, or Erdogan is personally very, anim, what's the word, antagonistic towards yeah. Assad. Uh, 
So they're not really concerned with stabilising Syria as far as, or they're not interested in stabilising it further than protecting their own interests. Okay. So they do, I mean, the other thing that must be considered is Turkey hosts an enormous number of Syrian refugees. Yeah. And so they said, well, if we create, can create this safe zone, um, this, the refugees can return. There are very aspect, various aspects to that. Part, one issue would be um, the, the Syrian refugees that they host tend to not have come from those areas okay. that the Syrian Kurds or the Syrian Democratic Forces control. And in fact, the, Syrian the area that the Syrian Democratic Forces control has been the most stable, since the removal of ISIS, it's been the most stable part of Syria. So there's no need to stabilise it because it's already stable. Hmm. Um, uh, some argue that Turkey wants to have some say in this area because it, by moving Syrian refugees back there, they're going to dilute, dilute the propor proportion of the population that's actually Kurdish, and in so doing, you know, undermine Kurdish hmm. intentions. Um, I mean, I think, and you touched on it earlier, the uh, YPG and the YPJ were America's most reliable allies in the battle against ISIS. So America's intimately involved in this area as well. Kurdish activists would say any concession to Turkey is completely selling out the Kurdish yeah. cause because the Kurds, and, you know, tens of thousands of Kurds have died mm. um, fighting ISIS, and which meant that American soldiers didn't have to go and do this, the same. Um, so Kurds are very concerned about that, that, you know, this safe zone um, is uh, selling out the Kurds to some degree, or the, the, okay. not only the Kurds, but other militias who have fought alongside with, as part of that Syrian Democratic Forces umbrella. So looking into Turkey now, what is the history of Kurdish political and civil rights there? Uh, it's a very fraught history. So if we go back to 1923, when the Republic of Turkey was established, it was established on the basis of unity of language, culture, and ideal. And that was that comes from a Republican People's Party's document published mm. in the 1930s. So the unity of language and culture was Turkish. So from the outset, there was a denial that there were in fact any minor, well, there was acknowledgement of Greeks, Jews, and Armenians, who were very small minorities. There was no acknowledgement of any Muslim minorities within Turkey. So that includes, well, Kurds are obviously the most numerous, but there's other Circassians, uh, Laos, you know, there's other obscure ethnic groups that no one's ever heard of. Uh, basically, Turkey said, the, the state of Turkey said, we're all Turks, you know, there were, so there was a program of assimilation. And in fact, there was Kurdish uprisings within years. Um, and just quickly, that Kurdish minority is very substantial. It's 15 to 20% yeah, of Turkey's yeah. population. Yeah, there's no accurate figures because there's been no there's nowhere on the census to actually register your ethnicity yeah um, so there's no one knows the exact figure but yes it's somewhere around 15 18 20 percent of the population so you know 15 to 20 million people mm. or perhaps not quite that many but certainly around 15 million mm. just within Turkey um, so there's been there was that denial of Kurdish identity from 1923 and there was uprisings and um, as I've quoted several times in my book there was 18 uprisings in the first 20 years of the uh, Turkish Republic, 16 of them were within the southeast, you know, so it was the Kurds who were rising up. So there's been this long um, narrative of denial, and in fact, um, there have been some sort of quite implausible theories put around. One was that the 
there were mountain Turks and they, they couldn't speak Turkish just because they'd forgotten their language. The fact that it just happened to be entirely distinct and related to Persian was neither here nor there. Yeah. And there's even a theory that they're actually called Kurds because they live in the mountains and when they were crunching through the snow in their boots, their boots would go kurt, kurt, kurt as ah. they crushed through the snow. So that was one of the, as, you know, as I say, rather implausible yeah. uh, theories. Um, so there was a very concerted attempt for decades to deny an end, uh, any Kurdish identity. Um, and that gradually, as Turkey has grown more democratic, uh, that, is kind of, that has changed. And so there's now not this denial of, of Kurdish identity, but from, the 19, from 1984, when the PKK arose, um, and their, their initial goal was creating an independent Kurdistan, um, there was this long association between Kurdishness and terrorism, or Kurdishness and separatism. So yeah. even through the 80s and 90s, when I was first there, still some people said, well, we shouldn't acknowledge Kurdish or Kurdish identity because if you do that separatism and there's a, there are quotes from uh, politicians in the 1990s saying we can't let them speak their language because if they do it would be the end of Turkey so that was the I mean that grew out of that mindset of the, the assimilation mindset that they had to forge ethnic unity um, and through the 90s gradually and through the 2000s that there's still some people who hang on to those ideas but Kurds certainly are much more able to assert their identity um, and they have been able to participate in political processes, but all, albeit quite constrained circumstances. So do you think Turkey's territorial interests are one of the main um, obstructions to just the basic political and civil rights that Kurds want without territorial, with, without them having territorial interests themselves? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely where it stemmed from. There was an idea that we had to have ethnic unity and if there's any acknowledgement of diversity the whole thing's going to come crashing down. And there's historical reasons for that. You know, the Ottomans used to control most of the Balkans and with a very diverse population, Greeks, Albanians, Bulgarians, etc., etc., all of whom asserted their identity and now have their own nation states. So there's this sort of precedent, like if you acknowledge an identity, it, it means that it's going to, the political entity is going to collapse. Mm. Um, so I think that's the underlying principle. But then it, it's or underlying narrative, which a lot of, Turks, um, you know, carry that narrative, and that's not to say all of them. You know, some of them are very broad-minded and want to encourage a democratic process, just as Kurds do, um, or just as some Kurds do. But there's also the the very fact that the main vehicle for Kurdish identity through the, from 1984 was the PKK means any Kurdish political vehicle can now be accused of separatism or supporting the PKK, hence being tarred with the the terrorism brush, so to speak. Mm. So a number of Kurdish mayors were recently removed by Turkey's central government on what appear baseless allegations of links to terrorism. How does this development speak to Kurdish political aspirations in Turkey today and their degree of political voice? Well, again, the very fact that they won elections is demonstration that Kurds can choose, vote freely and choose the party that they wish to do. Um, the, those who have been removed have all been members of the People's Democratic Party, the HDP, which is, it's not a strictly Kurdish party because you're not allowed to build or create parties in Turkey along ethnic lines, but it's certainly majority Kurdish. And indeed, when I was in Istanbul in 2015, I met, I went up to a stand, an HDP stand, um, but I was there before the June election of, of 2015. There was an HDP stand there and I went up and I said, hello, I'm from Australia, I'm a researcher, I want to, I'm, I'm talking to people about Kurdish politics. And they turned to me and they said, we're Turks. So there's, there's Turks who also, you know, um, 
vote for that party and yeah. support the party. And indeed, the HDP um, has Armenian other ethnic minorities. Again, it's that attempting to be that broad, all-encompassing democratic voice for everybody. So it's the HDP mayors who have been removed. Um, and I guess it's very easy in Turkish politics to say any party that is um, major, majority Kurdish has links to the PKK. And there's no de denying that um, you know there are various... Selahattin uh, Demirtash, who was the leader of the HCP, his brother was a member of the PKK. So there's a, mm. you know there it's it's possible to draw links, but whether that actually means that the HDP are a vehicle of for PKK interests is is yeah. another issue entirely. And looking at Turkish political parties, how does the ruling AKP relate to the Turkish population? Turkish or Kurdish? Sorry, Kurdish. Kurdish. Yeah. Well, the AKP, when they arrived, were actually something of a, rev a revelation. So they won power in 2002. Um, and they were actually, in their early years, quite progressive, you know, introduced legal reforms. They removed the emergency rule in various southeast uh, provinces where Kurds live, which had been in place for years, 15 years. So they were actually quite progressive and made an attempt to um, engage the Kurdish population. Some Kurds now say, oh, it was just all a way of winning you know, Kurdish votes and they didn't really care. But certainly um, they, in, as you mentioned earlier, began a, several in political negotiating processes, um, the most significant of which was the, what they call Juzim Sureji, which means the resolution process, which began in 2013. And it involved negotiations with uh, Abdullah Öcalan, who's in prison in Istanbul, um, and attempting to find political solutions to the issue. Um, the major concession that the AKP or the government wanted was that the PKK would um, surrender their arms and leave Turkish territory, many of which, or many of whom did. Erdogan made a very well-recognised speech in Diyarbakir, the major Kurdish city in 2005, and he said the way to address the Kurdish issue is through more democracy, not through more repression. Okay. And that was very well, warmly received. Um, but clearly in recent years, um, the AKP's relationship with the Kurdish population has soured. And part of that, I would say, is due to the success of the HDP in the 2015 election. So the AKP had won, I can't remember how many elections on the trot, consistently built its majority every time. In 2015, the HTP for the first time ever won seats in Parliament, which meant that the AKP lost their majority. Um, so many people say, well, there are some who argue that the AKP or Erdogan specifically at that point lost faith in the Kurds or the Kurdish population or the Kurdish electorate and decided that, just, well, to some degree, the things that have unfilled since then are a way of Erdogan taking his revenge um, because some argue, and I can't read Erdogan's mind, some argue that he made concessions to the Kurds and then they abandoned him by voting for the HDP, which has you know, created a lot of um, issue, well, certainly undermined the AKP's mm. um, strong uh, electoral performance. So touching on that, we've seen um, President Erdogan kind of consecrate his rule through constitutional amendments yep. and yeah, fraud elections that have really centralised power in his hands and reduced the democratic process in Turkey. So I'm wondering how does Erdogan's personal agenda affect the Turkish state's desire to resolve its conflicts with the Kurds? It's, I would say that Erdogan's 
personal agenda actually undermines the political process for all in Turkey, not just for the Kurds. Um, but I guess an important consideration is within the Turkish electorate, broadly conceived, there is there's uh, the sort of um, conservative majority or conservative not quite majority. So Erdogan's always going to have a certain proportion of uh, the vote. To win a, an absolute majority, he either needs to win the Kurdish vote or the progressive Turkish vote, which he's never going to do, um, or the Turkish nationalist vote. So, you know, he, he played, whether he played or he made attempts to engage the Kurdish vote and was successful some degree, to some degree. And of course, you know, the, he did some good things and the economy was booming and so there was a reason to vote for him, etc., etc. Since 2015, when the HDP has stood up and presented as, as a bloc that's going to retain a certain proportion of the vote. Some argue that Kurt Erdogan has now said, right, well, the way to maintain our majority is by winning the Turkish nationalists, some of whom are pretty hardline and intolerant. Okay. So there's a very, there's, you know, consistent sort of 15% of the population who vote for nationalist parties. Mm. So they're the ones who are always saying, well, we can't let Kurds speak Kurdish because that'll lead to dissolution of the country. They're the ones who say any Kurdish politician is a terrorist. So in, to win that vote, Erdogan's got to adopt a more nationalist posture. And all these things about threatening to invade Syria and stamp out this terrorist statelet or the Kurdish statelet or whatever it might be in Syria plays to that Kurdish, uh, Turkish nationalist electorate. Yeah. So in that sense, uh, you know, I think Erdogan's going to continue playing that tune because he knows it wins him a certain portion of the vote. And he now has a, a sort of unofficial alliance with the MHP, which is the Nationalist Action Party, mm. which are hard-aligned Turkish nationalists. Um, by the same token, I think he's not entirely uh, willing to abandon the Kurdish vote. So he still talks about my Kurdish brothers. He still likes to present himself as, you know, the, the good guy who's going to represent everyone. You know, so he's trying to He's trying to play to everybody, but I think increasingly yeah. the Kurdish voters are, are dismayed and unlikely to return to voting for the AKP. Okay, and you mentioned how Erdogan has been negotiating with Erdogan, um, the PKK's leader who's yep. in jail since 1990, is it? 99, he was captured in 1999. Yeah. So he's been in prison since 1999. Is is it right for the Turkish government to be negotiating with the PKK as a representative of the Kurdish people, or have they moved kind of beyond that separatist agenda to one where they want to engage the Turkish political system? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it is interesting. It's a good question. I mean, I think the reason they were engaging with uh, Ocalan was because the first step they saw as resolving the conflict. So the PKK, the, the group that's involved with, with the the conflict and there's this there's this kind of have your cake and eat it too aspect to this because um, Erdogan as you say or um, elements of his government were negotiating with Ocalan the represent or the figurehead of the PKK and yet here they are throwing other people out of office saying you're linked to the PKK so you're we can't trust you or we, you know you're a terrorist so they're they're trying to play both sides to some extent I mean the other thing is um, there is this some sort of power, power struggle or I don't know, the power struggle is the correct term for it, but there's, there, there's competition between the PKK and the HDP. Mm. So it's easy for the government to say the two are one, but actually, you know, 
the HDP say, well, we're pursuing our politics through democratic means. We're the representative. They're the ones. We're the ones that are being voted for. So there's this tension between you know the PKK and um, and some people say, well, the PKK were a bit miffed when the HDP became so popular electorally as well because they like to see themselves as the you know the champions of the Kurdish cause. Um, but I mean, I think the PKK. I think to some degree crave legitimacy. I can't say that I don't, I've never met anyone for the PKK, but I think they like to see themselves as they would like to see themselves as a legitimate political actor, and that's what they that's what they want to do. Um, I think there's no way that the Turkish state will ever agree to that, and certainly the, a lot of the Turkish population. I wrote a blog post once saying this is perhaps what they want, and I got all sorts of people saying it is an outrage to suggest that the PKK could be considered legitimate. Just finally, one last question which is if you're a, a young Kurd today living in Turkey, yeah. what are your likely aspirations and what are the, the likely prospects of those being realised? Another good question. So I guess there are various paths you can take as a Kurd. Um, and some people say, well, if you just live your law-abiding life, you can get anywhere within Turkish society, which is true. And there are even members of the AKP who are Kurdish. The thing is about those members of the AKP is they never say I'm Kurdish or they never say we need to, you know, stand up for Kurdish rights. So some some Kurds just go with the flow, um, go through university, work as hard as they can, you know, get a good job, whatever they can. Um, some maintain a sort of resistance posture, I would say, and they say, well, I'm Kurdish, I want to follow the path of democracy, the HDP are my representatives. You know, uh, we're going to struggle for our rights and that's what we will continue to do through democratic means. Um, and then there are others who say it's an outrage what Turkey has done to us. Um, you know, even through the 80s and 90s, early 2000s, the, the fight against the PKK, the Turkish state undoubtedly committed atrocities. Um, it's well documented that there was torture that was carried out in Diyarbakir prison, um, all sorts of Kurdish figures were murdered, political figures, or disappeared. Um, a lot of those have never, well, there's never been any prosecutions of anyone who's ever done that. A lot, most of them remain unsolved. So some Kurds are still outraged by this. And, and seeing recent developments, they say, well, look, we voted for the HDP, the mayor's won the election fair and square, and now the interior ministries come and move, you know, remove them. They say, well, we've tried democracy. It hasn't worked. The only thing we can do is take up arms or go to the mountains, which is the cliche for joining the PKK. So there are a range of options available to people. And then, you know, some Kurds leave um, and go to Western Europe or come to Australia. There's a big Australian, Australian Kurdish community. Um, so there are many paths open to them. Um, broadly speaking, I think most want to adopt, uh, a, you know, live the best life they can and you know, pursue politics through normal means. Um, and indeed, there was a study made in 1995 when I was living in Izmir, uh, a Turkish academic called Doğal Ergil, and he was the first one I ever did a major survey of Kurdish populations, and he went through various, he and his research team went through, I think it was six of the provinces through the southeast of Turkey. Um, and he said, what do you want or what's the issue? Is the PKK your representative? And some of them said, well, the PKK are our representative because we don't have any other. Most of them just said, we want to be Kurds, we want to live in Turkey, and we want to be Kurds. And I think the vast majority of Kurds, 
certainly all who are, well, the vast majority who I've met um, over the years uh, follow that path. They want to live in Turkey and they want Turkey to be a true democracy and they want to be able to say, I'm a Kurd and I live in Turkey and I've, I'm proud of that. Well, thanks for joining me today, Will, and offering such great insight into what is definitely a very contemporary political dynamic and one that's going to play an important role in shaping the region into the future. Not at all. It was my pleasure. Thanks very much for asking some very good questions. Um, great to be able to share my ideas and views.